Oh, yeah, I'd be glad to talk to you about the neurosequential model. It's a remarkable model, incredible heuristic, great way of thinking and describing how the environment affects how the nervous system develops and functions. Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, I get the pleasure of interviewing Randy Webb, who is an LPC in the state of Arizona and also a licensed LMHC in Washington State. He is a trainer for the EMDR Humanitarian Assistance Program and a facilitator for the EMDR Institute. He is also a trainer for Mercy Care of Arizona and a psychotherapist. Welcome, Randy. Hello. It's nice to be here. Absolutely. So I'm really glad to have you back. Uh, I got a lot of good feedback from episode 14, where Randy and I talked for a while about trauma-informed care, neurobiology, and the modern integrated care model. So I'm excited for the listeners what we've been previewing today. Um, Randy and I have been talking about the work of Dr. Bruce Perry, who is famous for the neurosequential model and a lot of other things. So I'm going to just talk probably turn it over to Randy a little bit to tell us about that, um, Dr. Bruce Perry. So why, why is Bruce Perry interesting? That's where I'll start with. Bruce Perry's a pretty remarkable person in almost any way you can imagine. The way he shows up, his, his energy, his presence, has this kind of calming effect on people. He, he's very present, very good at focusing on folks, asking them questions, sharing information, so as a person, he shows up that way. So he's a great model for the very thing he talks about. He's very good at, at developing a sense of safety and a sense of approval and respect with people. That's one thing that he does. And then, of course, there's the contribution he's made with hundreds of articles where he's collaborated with folks all over the planet, researchers, teachers, health professionals of various kinds, caregivers. So he's just a remarkable human being who has developed a vision as a result of his own evolution and working with people, making relationships that has had a huge influence on all those people I mentioned, the researchers and the caregivers and educators. And now he's getting into influencing how people think about how the nervous system works when the idea is to improve a person's performance, as in sports, for example. Yes, absolutely. That's a great introduction to him as a person. And if you're curious about Dr. Bruce Perry, um, there are some really cool videos on YouTube that I actually watched a few of them recently. One where he's at the Adverse Child Experiences Study Summit um, in Arizona, and he's talking through a lot of that. And then just some other videos he has kind of randomly on the internet um, that are unrelated to maybe his training work or his institute work. Uh, but just some interesting stuff. You can see him as a person really trying to model, I think, what he is trying to teach us about uh, brain development and early childhood interventions and just about regulating the nervous system. So I appreciate the introduction. And I, um, Absolutely. I'm very interested in his neurosequential model and a lot of things that you've got to say because, like you were mentioning, not only is this stuff helping us understand people more and the brain more, but this actually could influence the entire education system. 
uh, on a global level. It could actually, his research could actually influence um, how we treat people that are incarcerated, um, how, what we value in terms of giving to young parents, what resources, and even, of course, impacting how we do psychotherapy um, with the family and children as well. Absolutely. One thing that Bruce Perry and and folks at Child Trauma Academy, that's childtrauma.org if you wanted to look that up on the internet, and his organization based in Houston has found a great deal about the relationship between how human beings build relationships, how that influences very early in life, how a child's nervous system develops, and how it builds pathways over time that ultimately relate to the way the child makes memories, the way ultimately the way the child interacts with the world, the way the child believes about self. So we think of those notions of core beliefs that a person develops over time. And so it's a remarkable way of translating the power of attachment, the power of relationship, not only in early life, how a human being develops early in life, but also what kinds of things might we do to reverse the effects or to reduce the effects when that early attachment building, that early relationship making, that early memory making is characterized by a lot of suffering. Absolutely. So he is not only on the preventative side of what do we do with young children and and how do we help them have the best chance at life with um, their brain development, but he's also looking at what happens when we do have adversity and trauma and uh, environmental stress. And it was interesting. He was talking about some research he's done. And the cool thing is this is all research-based, and there is a lot of Very studies. So. This is not a theory he has come up with. This is confirmed by a lot of science, but it's still, I think, in the periphery. It hasn't fully been brought out into the public mainstream as... Um, everyday knowledge at all. In some states like Arizona, I know that they have this whole summit where they're talking about how do we influence policy with this information? How do we influence education to help them better adapt? But I know that this is still up and coming, which is why I'm glad we're talking about it. Absolutely. Um, Even though there's a body of research behind it. And I remember him talking a lot. This is not a rule, but he saw some correlations with when children had their first year of life, very stable, predictable, calm, Uh, parents with low stress situations and a lot of involvement, all the positive things he listed, even if at year two and three or four, things started getting unpredictable or stressful or difficulties in the home, they actually did a lot better than children who in their first year of life were unpredictable caregivers or they were put moved around in different foster homes, didn't have secure attachment, and then somewhere around age two or three, found a secure home right. and stayed there, that they seem to have more difficulties in terms of services needed and diagnoses and different difficulties than the children who had had that first year of life in this more tranquil or developmentally appropriate environment. That was some interesting thing I saw him talk about recently. It's very interesting. We get reminded. It's the kind of thing that professionals in child welfare will talk about oftentimes, and and you're hearing it a lot in the parlance of of professionals of different kinds, not just child welfare, to be fair, 
the notion of protective factors coming into play, and Bruce Perry's popularized that a great deal. One of his notions is, as he calls it, the five P's, is the caregiving present, meaning is the caregiver present? Is the caregiver emotionally Mm. present? Is the caregiver stable enough, centered enough, calm enough? And and we can get more into the neurology of that. Parallel, allowing a good space between the caregiver and the child is a right space. And that space between the caregiver and the child for example, if you think of, of the circles of cure, uh, circle of security, Bruce, uh, Bert Powell's notions about that ideal space, allowing the child room to explore, to learn, to be adequately stimulated, and to have an opportunity to come back and rejoin with the caregiver, where the caregiver plays a role in the child's developing, making memories, frankly, all based on those components of memory, of the smell and the taste and the sound and the color, as that nervous system is getting stimulated, the caregiver plays a role in being present and vigilant and eventually helping the child organize those experiences. And there's a lot we could say about that alone. The caregiver is patient. So these are indications that the caregiver has a certain degree of Resiliency is in there, having resolved the caregiver's own experiences adequately. We're not talking about them being perfect. Persistent, consistent, and providing safety and adequate stimulation. And in that stimulation, it's patterned, it's predictable, and it's positive doses, as Dr. Perry says. Positive doses, that notion of dosing is very important of a protected experience. So there's this lovely balance between providing safety and validation and an opportunity for the child to explore and for that stimulation to allow growth in the child's nervous system and ultimately everything connected to it to develop and grow. And so there's there's all that going on as a as a way of describing relationally how these experiences help that child build those protective factors, particularly early in life, that even if the fir- even if the time after that first year or so, or the first two years, as as Dr. Perry talked about in the in the Arizona Adverse Childhood Experiences Summit back in December, even if some of those things happen, the protective factors are so strong that the child might better withstand some of those challenges that that may have some impact, perhaps, on and how that child develops. Absolutely, yes. So we're talking about the very baseline of what can help somebody be set up for a successful life, essentially, in terms of how their nervous system functions and how they're able to respond to stress and difficulties and problem-solving and growth um, versus what on the opposite hand would be an adverse difficult thing is really coming down to those those five p's that's some of it um but it's also just showing us that it's so important for the parents to have that support because Absolutely. if they're stressed about food or money or housing or you know some of the basic needs that stress even if around the child they don't talk about it they may be physically stressed and they may be forgetting um, to do certain things, or they may not be parallel, or they you know may not feel present to the child. And the child, 
as we know, and this is a very unscientific way of saying it, is sort of absorbing yes. the environment around them. And a lot of times when I work with parents, they're wondering, well, what do I do for the best parenting this and the best parenting that? And there's all sorts of incentive and rewards and certain types of positive parenting techniques you can do. But I often tell people it really comes down to how are you living? Absolutely. How are you living your life? How satisfied are you with your life? Are there areas of your life that you're struggling in? Are you working on those? Are you getting support? Do you have social support supporting you in your community and people you can trust to talk to? Because the better you're doing, the better your child's going to do because they don't understand abstract thoughts about the future or about what you're teaching them. Right. They understand feelings more when they're, especially when they're younger. The younger they are, the more feeling, um, and tone and um just they sense things that as adults i think we have a defense of sometimes we have a defense of that we don't always sense unless we're really keying in and being mindful so it's really about how the child develops alongside of us not about what we want them to do we can want them all sort of we can intellectually want our child to do this and to do that and to do this If we don't behaviorally give them those opportunities and atmospherically and environmentally give those opportunities in a sort of not even a way you have to talk about, they won't be able to achieve what we objectively want. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bruce Perry spends a great deal of time with caregivers. One of the one of the components of the neurosequential model, we have the neurosequential model of therapeutics where he focuses on the clinicians, for example, the, ther- the neurosequential model for educators, the neurosequential model for, of caregiving. And in that branch of it, so much is focused towards, okay, you're in this role of building an attachment with this child. That's best done with you taking care of yourself, you resolving whatever memories you've made, Whatever networks you have constructed, not necessarily intentionally, that's one of the beauties of this model, is it really does remove that sense of shame and judgment about the caregivers. There's no, there's no well, you're, you're making these mistakes, that's to be corrected. There's much more of a, let's take a look at how you're making relationships and where that comes from. Let's educate you about this. And let's also take into account that you're doing the best you know how, and our shaming you or criticizing you is not necessarily the best use of our time. Let's approach it from the standpoint of, let's take a look at the influences on how you developed as a human being. And so naturally that lends itself beautifully like Bruce Perry did, Dr. Perry did in the summit in December here in Arizona when he talked about, well, let's take a look at your genogram. Let's take a look at the the social determinants of your development. Let's take a look at that from a multi-generational standpoint. And that's certainly not limited to the kinds of adverse experiences that sometimes we talk about where these things are in home. There might be mental health issues, substance use issues, domestic violence. When we think of the adverse childhood experiences questionnaires, those are the things that we kind of think of. But another beautiful aspect of what Dr. Perry is talking about is it takes into account things like discrimination, oppression, poor access to food. Like you were, so when we think of these these caregivers, let's take into account those basic human needs also, kind of like a Maslow's hierarchy. We can be talking beautifully. Bruce, Dr. Perry tells a story 
of how organizations or clinics or practitioners may talk about being trauma-informed may really celebrate the notion that they're really getting into it, that they're taking these developmental and social determinants of health into account, and yet may ignore things like, for generation, this person may come from a gen, from multiple generations of exclusion, of discrimination, of living in food islands, and not having access to health care, not having adequate access to security on multiple levels, on a broader community level. So he's taking he's taking into account these things that happen in our families between caregivers and children. And he's also taking into account this ecology, this this social ecology that's much greater than that. And so I love how you just went from micro to macro. So yeah. in terms of that, I was just thinking about his example about the young man who went to prison. Right. And about how we will now spend $50,000 a year for the rest of this person's life in prison, incarcerating him, which adds up to, I don't remember what he said, but a lot, maybe over a million dollars of the state's money. And we are spending a lot of money incarcerating people. And obviously, we have to you know stop crime and some people have to be incarcerated. Perhaps they've gotten too far. But what about what about our not just money but our education and our prevention system if we're if we're if we're living in a society that provides and helps provide people basic needs um, and make sure people don't fall through the cracks that's going to affect childhood development on a broad area and if we're cutting those resources we don't believe that people are entitled to health care or food and on some level um we we are possibly creating situations where children grow up without that. They have major traumas, disorganized caregivers, stress involved. Then over time, they become, you know, not to, I'm not taking away their personal choice, but their choices are influenced by their neurological development. Very much so. And so not having those safety guards could develop a whole generation of children who don't know how to regulate their emotions and who may commit a large crime like that the guy who went to jail he went to jail for murder you know um they that may lead to social upheaval 20 years down the line absolutely and um and so trying to look at the macro policy of how do we take care of people while still incentivizing them to contribute to society and in in through work or through whatever they do um, but making it fair so that the people are able to have a place to live that's safe. Um, they're able to have clean food and clean water, um, which is a basic need of people, especially a, a need of people who are raising children um, in, in a home. And so how that all connects, which is really interesting to the neurosequential model, which we, you said the model, we're talking about the neurosequential model. Um, so I love bringing it out to the macro and I think you and I could go on about that for hours. Absolutely. But I, I, I w- we will. I want to wrap that in over and over. But I, I also want to <laughs> Absolutely. make sure. I also want to make sure I give you an opportunity to talk about the basics of the neurosequential sure. model um, beyond the five P's sure. of what is healthy for the child, and then we'll and we'll keep tying this back into the macro. Oh, absolutely. I think it's one of the strengths of the neurosequential model is the way it goes into the micro level and. We're talking about a remarkably complex system, the human nervous system, all the way 
as it relates to maybe policy and how we think about how human beings get their basic needs met and what are the consequences of when we don't do that, either in prevention or in intervention. So there's a lot there that's beautifully related from a trauma-informed care perspective, the kind of thing Sandra Bloom talks about in, in the University of Pennsylvania with the sanctuary model, this whole notion of how do we get systems to be more trauma-informed so we could go at the very micro level, and if we go into the micro level and look about and look at, well, what is happening in the nervous system and how does the how do these experiences, these adverse experiences within the home, in the community, affect how that nervous system develops? So what Dr. Perry does, and it is a, a wonderful confluence of different ideas over the years about how does the environment affect that nervous system? How might other processes even beyond epigenetics we think about the system above the genetics the how the dna is read and transcribed how it's changed by experience the kind of thing that that dr nadine burke harris has really popularized beautifully with her ted talk from 2014 that went beautifully viral talking about the original adverse childhood experiences studies if we zone in dr perry himself says If you take a look at the model itself, he says, I remind you that it's a model. There are other models. There are other heuristics. The human nervous system is the most complex thing we've ever encountered. So it gives us a starting point. And that starting point, he describes as the nervous system being divided into four parts. The brainstem and the cerebellum that have to do with the regulation of the organism. Blood flow and the heart beating and digestion, those things. Then you have the midbrain or diencephalon that's related in part to how the organism survives as well. So it's kind of a bridge between that and the limbic system. So we think about the diencephalon as to having to do with some of those basic human functions, but start to move into our emotional reality how how our, our organisms handle sensory information or how it relays sensory information from the outside world and from within ourselves. We tend to associate the limbic system with the fight, flight, or freeze responses. And along with that midbrain seem to be related in attachment, how attachment happens. That seems to be in there. And then, of course, with the cortical system, and specifically probably the most, the prefrontal cortex, sometimes called the most human part of the brain, having to do with a number of functions, right? The executive function, we think about concentration, focusing, goal setting, following through on goals, impulse management, prioritizing, creating a sense of structure in one's life, and to some degree, along with other structures, I mean, we know we're oversimplifying, having to do with how you build a, a sense of mentalizing, it's sometimes called, or having a sense about another person, how it might feel to be in that person's shoes. Some people that talk about the development of mirror neurons being involved, perhaps, in, in some of these structures. And so he starts with that basic notion 
representing it as an upside-down triangle, where the brainstem and the cerebellum's at the bottom, the more so-called primitive, you hear Peter Levine call it the reptilian brain about mm-hmm. territory and survival. The middle parts of the brain having to do with attachment, more of what we share with the, the, the furry little animals, as, as you might hear Stephen Levine refer to. So another kind of another model, but we can see where this is a confluence of a number of ideas about how the nervous system is structured and developed. So the middle part, so in the middle part of that, of that upside down inverted triangle, if you want to call it that, Kind of like the kind of like the uh, an inverted form of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you might think of it, and then the cortical part at the top. And so, some people like to think of it as an ice cream sundae. You know, they'll <laughs> think of it as you know the the bottom part and the middle part and the cream on top being more like the cortex, the cortical functions. So that gives us a starting point. And then what Dr. Perry does that is absolutely elegant. I would invite anyone to go online and look at some of these charts of how Dr. Perry will use that as a starting point, and Child Trauma Academy, of course, will use that as a starting point, as a map of, of determining how experience is processed through those systems, and at any given time, how that developing nervous system, taking, account, taking into account the child's development and what maybe he might call more neurotypical when compared to a child at different developmental stages, or you know, taking into account the child's chronolog- chronological age, for example, and how that child's processing, or kind of a pattern of processing in those four sections is, care- is being, how shall we say, how it shows up in a way based on the child's history of adverse experiences. So you might have a neurotypical child. You take into account how the child's developing at that chronological age and compare that same, that same child who presents as neurotypical or the pattern that they've established as neurotypical and how that might compare to a child who already is having these adverse experiences. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable way of thinking about it. Absolutely. And I remember he gave some examples because he did say that the nervous system of the human is one of the most complex systems. And it's really difficult to break it down because we're talking about a lot of scientific inquiry. And so we're trying to simplify. And so it's kind of like we're getting a hint at what's there and we kind of get a trend, but we don't always get complete specificity because it's still the brain is still being mapped and discovered and learned about and so one of the examples he gave was i heard this a few times um children in school so you'll have children in preschool kindergarten and uh some of the children seem to be learning quite well and they're keeping up with the class they're paying attention pretty well they're not having many behavioral outbursts. And those are your kind of neurotypical children coming from a home where there's probably more of that safety and consistency factor going on. And then we have some children who start falling behind throughout the school year and may have a, and because they're falling behind, feel frustrated um, and may, may have some behavioral issues unrelated or related to the schoolwork. Although a lot of children um, you know, they have some related to, you know, socialization, but also some related to just they feel like they can't understand certain things that the teacher's saying and that causes a lot of frustration <clears throat> and anger. And he talks about how 
you know, we used to sort of label these children right. and make stereotypical um, observations and um, non-scientific judgmental comments and sort of profiling these children who acted out or were falling behind and almost saying, oh, they're just not smart or right. something like that. Or, oh, it's because their parents are, you know, not smart. They're, you know, both have this type of job. And what he's saying is this is just completely wrong. Absolutely. Um, the science is is saying uh, this is this is not a philosophy we're talking about. This is the science saying this is what's happening is a lot of those children are coming from a place where their neocor their prefrontal cortex is being somewhat inhibited yes to be open and responsive and mindful and be to be able to have that concentration factor because of what's going on at home and it could just be stress but it could also be abuse neglect um constant moving to different houses fear right. of food fear of poverty fear of violence domestic violence and the child may not even know what's going on but they're absorbing right the environment to the point where their brain is being affected in different areas and therefore their cortex is i, I guess he called it kind of this is sort of a, a small way of reducing it but sort of not online as much as right. some of the children who come in they've eaten breakfast they've right. eaten a healthy breakfast they had right. a, enough sleep their parents read to them the night before their parents touched them appropriately and they come in there and they're learning and then there's this huge gap. And then what do the teachers do? There's the achievement gap. Right. And the, we used to sort of label them, uh, you know, in some schools even as problem children. Right. When in fact, this child is experiencing developmental trauma. And on, on a brain level, according to the neurosequential model, they're experiencing difficulties with processing and concentration. And if they're just left in the traditional medical model, we probably instantly slap a label of... Um, intermittent explosive disorder, oppositional defiant, right. or ADHD upon them, right. which they may exhibit the symptoms of, but is that really what's going on? Is it, Did they just develop this disorder, or is this a combination of things happening in the brain, body, nervous system, the social system, their family system, and the larger ecological system that's different from the neurotypical child? Right. That's a wonderful way to conceptualize it and how beautifully trauma-informed that is, if you think about it, Paul, right, is it reminds us that the child is doing the best that the child knows how. The caregivers are doing the best they know how. And in their relationship making, there are those stressors and those things that happen that could affect anybody at any time, a lack of food, some psychosocial stressors, someone loses a job, look at all the folks who... We've experienced this locally, as in a lot of places, folks with the shutdown, with the government's shutdown, now mm-hmm. suddenly have this remarkable stressor. And so families may have a lot of things going for them where they have a lot of strengths, and you can have a strong enough stressor. And if these stressors last long enough, and they start to affect other ways that the family does its, re- uh, its relationship making, the way it does its relationship making, these disruptions can have an effect. And it becomes a part of a vicious cycle. And as Dr. Perry said beautifully, when he was showing those genograms of the man who had gone into another western state, got triggered in a place, overreacted, and it had very violent outcomes. He killed several people. When you look at that, when you look at that history of his family, you see that, as he described, there were a number of strengths in the family history. And this person, who as a young man killed those people, what do we see? 
The family had all these stressors, and some of them, it's not quite so fair as to simply say the person had choice. When we take into account, as you said, beautifully, look at all these influences on that nervous system. It's going to present us with some, as Bruce Perry has told us in our training with him, we're going to be faced, I know I'm backing out of the macro to some degree. Sure. But if we look at the fam, starting with the family unit itself, and if we look at that nervous system itself, so if you look at the whole continuum, I think this is something Dr. Dr. Perry does very well with us, is show the connection all along an entire continuum from how that nervous system is developing and what contributed to develop the way it did, and what are the outcomes of that that are not necessarily... Mm, doesn't really lend itself very well to us just simply sticking a label on it. Well, that's ADHD, or that's oppositional defiant disorder, or that's bipolar, or any number of other trendy diagnoses that we go through sometimes. To his credit, he may say, okay, just so that he has a starting point with some people, like when he trains clinicians like we are, he may start with, okay, we're calling that set of behaviors oppositional defiant disorder or attention hyperactivity disorder or attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. Okay, so we'll have that as a starting point. But ultimately, what he'll do is he'll break down things in such a way to where we start to see the linkages between how, how these environmental things and the influence of previous generations have, an in, have influenced that blueprint that a person comes into the world with and a whole continuum of influences that start right there in the family in those first relationships, those first pathways the child is making, all the way up to implications on what kind of world, what kind of community, what kind of, well, what kind of what kind of family, what kind of community, what kind of world is that individual contributing to? And so, as he said in his presentation in Phoenix, as he was looking at that remarkable case study, looking at both the father and the mother side of the family in those genograms, taking into account those things that happened to them, very trauma-informed, more a focus on what happened to them and less about what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. That is so remarkable because when he take, took that into account, he said, I hate to say it, in a city, wonderful city like this one, right now, if we're talking about, just for example, the education system, you take that child who has a, a legacy of these adverse experiences, and that child shows up in school, like you said. So there's that, that, that legacy, that history that may have gone back for generations, and then there are these ongoing situations, someone in the family being laid off, government shut down, someone loses a, a, a loses a job, there's a lack of food, and those are always present. Those psychosocial stressors are on the family affecting, can affect how the family makes a relationship with the child. Child shows up at school and he says, I hate to say it, but right now there may be a child whose reactions to what's happening in the environment as we know from so many constructs in, in trauma-informed care that are very well backed up by the science, the child is hyper-activated you know, hyper and is overreacting, is exploding, is getting angry, 
is having difficulty concentrating, is having difficulty learning, is having difficulty prioritizing things and organizing things. We, we associate these most, right, with, with the cortical functions. Or the child is associating and shutting down and swinging in between the two during the course of the day. How quickly, with good intentions, as Bruce Perry said, with those people, all those, all those professionals, well-educated, smart people, using traditional interventions, not so well applying this wisdom from trauma-informed care, may, as Bruce Perry said, right now there may be somebody and probably a person, maybe a child of color, person who has whose family may have experienced this kind of exclusion that we're talking about on a micro level, may have experienced it for generations, how quickly we may, if we as the the teachers and the other people working with this person in probation, in developmental disabilities, in special education programs, in prevention programs, primary care, and including us in the behavioral health system yeah. with good intentions, if we're not careful how quickly we just jump to a diagnosis, mm-hmm. jump to just pinning a problem on him or his caregivers or both, and not really getting at the heart of the, maybe this is timely given the time of year we're in, getting at the heart of what we're talking about. And for Dr. Perry, that starts with an analysis and an evaluation from this model of what parts of the nervous system are being affected by experience, starting with relationship, and how it shows up in school, and how that's going to show up in the person's other relationships, how that's going to show up in the person's work, and all those other all those other consequences, like in this the case that he gave as a case in the example at the summit in Phoenix that resulted in violence, mm-hmm. and has a number of other consequences as we see. I think that the science is so strong, it's a matter of kind of helping people and organizations and policymakers learn about this because it's a bit more complicated. Um, the older system of medicine, which you can categorize, label for the sake of brevity, because you don't have as much time and you need right. to know what's going on, and then you need to give them a medication or you need to just put them in this program or that program, that is perhaps not broad enough. It's not broad enough, especially for people who are going through major... I mean, we use the word trauma because of what... It's disrupting the nervous system. I don't know. There's got to be... We we talked about this last time. Is there a better way to say this so people don't... Because there's also a cultural thing with the word trauma Very which much. can be over-utilized and people say, well, you guys are just dramatizing it all. Well, okay, let's just talk about stress. Right. Some type of stress that is not just a personal stress. It's a cultural stress. It's a social stress. It's a family stress that can cause the nervous system to be disrupted long enough that it's seen as a trauma because the blips of the the symptoms that are coming out of this, that they're coming into the office with, or they're coming into the school principal's office with, are saying... Um, yeah, that was a trauma. That was that's from trauma informed care. We know that was a trauma that disrupted their nervous system so much that they're still reacting in these predictable ways, right. which we can see from science that these ways are predictable. But the interventions and the prevention programs may not have an idea. We almost have to sort of rewrite some of them, right? Um, because we can help. I mean, we can't help from a clinician standpoint. We can't help everything in the community. 
but we can certainly educate the family and help the family and educate the child and help the child and and demonstrate things that can help them but it's almost as if we need to if the system is saying diagnose pin it on them uh figure it out and that can lead to an attitude versus coming from this uh, a more holistic what i think they even call it wraparound services which has sort of right. been trying to do this where you have multiple interventions including people in the home um, more interventions up front instead of a small intervention a lot of interventions a lot of people helping the parents people helping the child people going into the school as much as possible but we have to almost start from the new paradigm of the science because some of our cultural biases and our traditions of the way we've dealt with people who have been undergoing developmental trauma, um, they aren't wor- the old interventions don't work on them very well. Right. I, that's a that's a great point, and I'm fairly confident that if Dr. Perry were here sitting with us right now, I'm fairly confident he would agree with you very strongly that he would say the old people are well intentioned, but these old ways of just saying, "Okay, we're going to apply this in." perhaps with the goal of having it be more like a medical model, ironically, since he's a physician, right? that he might say, that might be really tempting for us, is to say, okay, the best way to treat that or the best way to prevent it is to, is to look at it as from, a path, as a from a pathological standpoint. And the, this business of, okay, let's, let's come up with a diagnosis now, because, why is the diagnosis important? Because it informs us as how to intervene, how to help. He might say, well, that might be well-intentioned, but what it's led us to is a way of believing that somehow or another, if we just tell people to do something different, or if we just focus on their behaviors, or if we just focus on behavior modification, or if we just try to correct their thinking, be it the children or be it the caregivers, that that might be adequate or somehow might generalize. And he's made a great case for when you break this down the way he's talking about and how these experiences are are affecting the nervous system, the emphasis now becomes on the nature of relationship itself. Not surprising since we have so much evidence that it is the therapeutic relationship accounts for the greatest variance in how effective we are. So whether you're looking at people like Scott Miller, for example, that's a great starting point, but you wouldn't have to be limited to that. So we, we see that, we see the power of relationship to influence how people resolve what they've experienced, and they were not limited to something like, I don't know, behavior modification, a token system, a level system like we see in therapeutic group settings. For example, Bruce Perry, Dr. Perry tells a great story about an intervention they performed in therapeutic group homes, and they found out something fascinating. They found out that by teaching the staff, now to be fair, the staff have a lot of stress of their own. Mm-hmm. And so that thinking about stress and a continuum of stress, and in what ways is it helpful for the organism to grow and to learn, and to what degree is it a hindrance, and to recognize how uh, in certain ways that's very unique to each nervous system. That's one size doesn't fit all. When they were working with these workers in a therapeutic group setting, they found out something very interesting. One piece was helping the workers manage their own stress, just like caregivers. That's one piece. And there are a lot of ways we can approach that. There's another piece as it related to the workers in the therapeutic group home, realizing that the way they dose 
change the way they offer dosages of novelty to the children, to the youth coming into the therapeutic group home was a critical notion. They came in and told them, why don't you do this? As opposed to focusing so much on diagnoses and focusing so much on the youth's pathologies, what if you were to go about the business of getting to know things about their backgrounds, their preferences, what they're used to, what are their routines that they're familiar with? We know the power of the youth in a situation like that or like in foster homes having some sort of connection to their past that might have them feel like they're holding on to something that's familiar, that's safe, as opposed to just cutting completely off anything from their past, that they hold on to like a transitional object, like a toy or a blanket, that the workers spend some time getting to know them, getting an idea of, of what they're used to, before they expose them to all these rules of the new place and from a trauma-informed care perspective that neurosequential model is consistent with to study about the experiences of the youth as well to get that kind of perspective about their relationships, about the nature of their attachment with their caregivers, their histories that way, to take into account their cultural histories to take into account these broader notions of the ecology we're talking about, to take into account their experiences at school, to take those things into account instead of just going, okay, we have this level system and we have this point system and when you behave well, you get to have access to these things that help you feel good. You get to have access to these things like what, playing with a video game or using your phone or to talking to your friends or to have contact with people or to have part of the social activities of the place. These are basic human needs. I'm not saying it's all about video, about video, video, video game, games. I'm saying their pathways and their habits that the youth use to cope. They're going, to, they're going to develop these things. The organism's going to develop them. Well, anyway, the point of all that is, is they came out and the overarching, I guess you could say the overarching notion was here, is by helping the, the people working in these therapeutic group homes spend some time getting to know the youth and what they're used to, the memories they've made, the pathways they've established, more from that standpoint, taking these things into, into account, what happened to them and less as to what's wrong with them, what they found out was is that it was a great alternative to having these point systems and level systems that reward them, reinforce them for their compliant behavior. Because when they would do something, when they would have the level systems or point systems, Sandra Bloom talks a great deal about this too, what would happen is invariably there would be something, an authority figure or someone restricting them somehow or asking them two personal questions or invading their personal space. And what would happen naturally, not surprisingly, maybe a bit difficult to predict, but not surprisingly, these youth as residents in these settings would have a reaction. They would overreact and get hyper aroused and blow up and break things and get really angry and upset. Or they would dissociate. So, and that might lead to disrupt placements, disruptions in the home, uh, disruptions in the group home, going AWOL, 
So they have more restraints, staff exerting more restraints on them, which is stressful for the staff. And so they found out that they reduced restraints and disrupted placements by doing little more than educating the staff to assume a more trauma-informed perspective. Absolutely. And I, I totally love that example because something I was wanting to mention is that a lot of behavior, all these things, not all of them, how do I say this? Behind every behavior is a need. Right. And with children, they can't always express their needs verbally like adults would in a way that makes sense to adults. And so children are more apt to just act to right. try to get their needs met. Right. And so we might see the video game as a negative. Right. But for, for that child, they're utilizing the video game to cope. Right. Um, this is not an all or nothing argument. They're using it to cope. And yeah, they need to learn to use it appropriately in the right amount of time and the right, you know, the prioritization of all that. But and and so and also it's it's all trying to, especially when you're in a stressful situation, but in, in any situation, people are trying to stay safe. And they need their environment to be safe. And so when we see, quote unquote, symptoms, these symptoms are a way that have been outside of what we perceive as our cultural norm of people attempting to be safe. If you think about uh, anyone listening, some some strange behaviors that you would see as strange or maybe shameful from your youth, if you look at those through a lens of the therapist, you may actually find that some of those uh, behaviors were... Um, either learned from a source, or were you attempting to um, f- control your environment, or feel safe, or or escape a bad situation, or whatever it may be? And so, if we if we come from that perspective, and what I'm seeing with the group home is they took time to really connect with the kids, right? Before saying, "Okay, welcome to boot camp. Here's the ten rules of the group home. If you do this, you can play. You can be on the phones for an hour. And if you do this, you have to be in the detention area and you have to go to bed at seven, like right. the little kids. And I've seen that. I remember working with kids in the system here in Arizona when I did, and feeling so, feeling dismally sad about the fact that even when I talked to the group home guys and women who were awesome, they were under resourced. <laughs> Absolutely. And they didn't have even the time they felt to even have long conversations with the kids. They were just more concerned about, oh my gosh, I got to get these kids these appointments. I got to make sure this person's picked up after school because they're in sports. And so the kids who weren't engaged in positive activities after school, who weren't in art programs or sports programs or whatever, and they're, and these are group homes means, of course, for people that don't know what that is, is that's that's kids who are in the foster system who don't have a foster family. They're put in homes, and they're right. usually between the ages of 12 and 18 Right. Um, most often. Because yeah. usually if you're younger than that, they can find you a foster placement. Um, right. Not always. But essentially, I, the kids who weren't already kind of taking a resilient... They weren't didn't have that resiliency to the trauma and stress they were under being removed from parents at such a young age. They just kept causing more and more disruptions, and people didn't know what to do. And, and to the point where... The kids didn't even know why they were acting out. I remember talking to a kid and he, he's like, I just, I don't know. I just get mad. I just get mad at, at being in this place. And it's, it gets under, you know, I'm just mad at being in the group home. Right. And so then he would just sabotage any attempt at the point system or getting, you know, privileges because he was just angry. And, and that's a therapeutic issue, but that's also a system issue. Um, and it was, you know, he was going through it and, and, you know, 
according to his behavior level at the time, he only qualified for outpatient therapy and med management. Right. And this, and the ironically terrible part about it was I was almost happy when he acted out further because then he qualified for more services. Exactly. And isn't that just a shame? Because then everyone's going, rolling their eyes. I'm not saying that caregivers are doing this or the group home, but kind of the people that have to enforce the rules, sometimes the police, sometimes the, the uh, state workers, they get frustrated because they're on overworked too and under you know resourced and then they're trying to work with this kid and just try to explain logically to a child if you just do this you get ice cream but right. if you don't do this you get early bedtime that child we're forgetting according to bruce perry's model their cortex is not online it's not they may not feel safe at all it might take think about yourself if you've moved ever even if if you've moved to a new place you, it can take six months or more to feel right. normal in that place and if you've moved out and you're a child You've moved to a home with a bunch of people your age and no parents and no safety and your animal's not there and your blanket's not there and your stuff isn't there and your pictures aren't there and your history's not there and you're not sure if you'll ever see your parents again or when you'll see your parents again or if your parents are alive at all. That's a huge disruption to safety. And so those kids are at a great disadvantage to any type of success. There are exceptions to every rule. As you said, some kids hyper overreact and those are the kids that get in trouble. Then some kids dissociate. And what I saw that as a symptom of dissociation usually means like shut down, right. quiet, they won't talk. They're just kind of passively going with the flow. And then some kids, you know, I think maybe if they started with, a, according to Bruce Perry's model, we don't know, we'd have to look at it. But I saw some kids in the system who had had a very normal childhood until about age seven. Uh, what I mean by normal is... Um, safe and secure and whatnot and then something happened and they got into the system well those i i often remember just anecdotally seeing a couple of those kids they were the ones involved in sports and going hey how can i their coping skill was how can i get more involved in school because that felt good how do i get more involved in clubs right and they weren't really often in too much therapy Right. right um but the kids who had already grown up i remember i can't get into too much detail but this poor kid had moved oh my gosh by the time I saw him, they didn't even know how many times he'd moved. They thought it was over twenty, over right. twenty times, right. and in and out of foster care. Parents were not at the time I finally worked with them. Parents unknown whereabouts, didn't even know if they were alive or dead, and uh, a, a grandfather who was very poor and had low skills and health problems, trying to care for this poor kid. Um, and I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, this, and then they, of course he was labeled as some sort of diagnosis. And I was thinking, this is not a diagnosis. This is, he's got no one. He's right. got grandpa who's only partly there mentally. And then he's got, uh, luckily a court appointed special advocate who is trying to help right. see him three times a week therapy. But it, th- this kid needed community and needed a group home or a foster placement that could understand where he was coming from. And he was in, you know, terrible distress. I know luckily, um, the court appointed special advocate knew a lot of trauma informed stuff and eventually found him a pretty good foster placement and was able to sort of help him round out. But he had problems every week at school. You know, he would be 13 years old, but act like he was eight. Right. And in fact, people thought mistook him for being a younger child, even though he looked 13, when you talk to him, emotionally, he was delayed and just always feeling scared and, and worried. And as a therapist, I just did the best I could. And I ended up 
um, not seeing him in the office, I would go um, to his school and sometimes during some of his stuff, like see him at school to kind of help him feel safe at school. And so I took some, the ability we had to do that at the time was to right. get out of the office. It's also easier for him because he had a difficult placement. But in that situation, as a system, we don't need to wait for him to get in trouble or get right. on drugs to give him more services. That exactly. kid needs services immediately, even though he wasn't really acting out. He was just clearly in distress with low social supports. So, I love the way you put that, and I get reminded that the people who provide the services and the caregiving and the interventions and the support and help him get connected, really much like if you think about the nervous system itself, about being about connections and making connections. Dr. Perry tells us that nervous system of a child is making 500,000 to a million neuronal connections per second at birth. And so you get reminded of the power of connection. That, that you know, What do we say? Connection is the, an, uh, the antidote for isolation and depression. And connection is, we're oftentimes saying addiction. What is that? It's a lack of connection. We think about from a cultural competency standpoint. And Dr. Perry talks about this. He, he gets asked about this. Well, from a cultural competency standpoint, what's keeping what's keeping caregivers from connecting well? What's keeping us from as workers from connecting well? What's involved in that? There's relationship making. There's vulnerability. There is a willingness to try something new ourselves. And to what degree do we have our own memories resolved well enough? To what degree are we finding out who we really are at the core and what are we about? What's our sense of mission? What's our passion? And what's keeping us from doing that? What's keeping us from being open to new experiences? What's keeping us from making connection? And so one of the beauties of the neurosequential model is taking those things you set into account very beautifully. And what is the load of the caregiver? What is the load on the worker? So you have that whole neurosequential contribution to the idea of the vicarious trauma, the secondary trauma, the the sanctuary trauma, the burnout, the compassion, fatigue, well-intentioned people. As we talked about last time in episode 14, we were talking about foster parents, for example. Those are most of the people I work with professionally. In a therapeutic setting where I'm the therapist are people who are the caregivers. And they're getting triggered. And they're getting burnt out. And they're getting exhausted. And oftentimes, there are folks who come from generations of being excluded and having difficulty getting their basic needs met. These cycles repeat. And so, absolutely, what might we do in a preventative sense, knowing that we can help build capacity, help build these protective factors? What's something that trauma-informed care research has revealed is we are expending, as Bruce Perry said with this one person as you described earlier, um, you know, two and a half million dollars, three and a half million dollars with this person in, in prison lifelong after killing those people. Look at how we're spending our resources. Are we, are we doing enough in the way of breaking the cycles earlier on? And we have lots of evidence for the power of that. So we can take into account the loads, the stress, of all kinds on everyone who has a nervous system and and we can and we can measure to his credit dr perry has come up with a system a heuristic a model 
for mapping that out, the load on the caregivers, what is the effect on that nervous system, to what degree your basic needs being met, relational needs, needs of belonging, needs of self-regulation, yes, and changing the way we think about students and we think about foster children and we think about youth and we think about people having relational problems and we think about people having health problems. So the, the neurosequential model is this, this wonderful coalescing of all these notions we have in trauma-informed care. It's beautiful that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, I love how you put that all together. And it was actually interesting. I was just doing a training on two days ago uh, called The Intentional Clinician, also the name of this podcast. And I go through a lot of different research about what you talked about, about uh, Scott Miller's research and mindfulness research. And I, it's not even actually about trauma-informed care. It's about how, as a clinician, how do you show up the best? And explaining that due to the research, knowing that rapport, alliance, and allegiance are 90% of the treatment effect of therapy and only 10% the model and the structure that you utilize, although model and structure are important. If you don't have one, then you're, that's pretty hard to know what you're doing, but the rapport and the relationship, and then the person believing in the therapist and their model that you're using is most of the treatment effects. So a lot of my training, uh, focused back on every point and every type of skill I tried to teach was not an, a technique, right? It was more of how, you know, I talked about mindfulness. How to utilize that? How to use utilize ritual? How to use curi- utilize curiosity and renewal of right. your mind and being open and not assuming things? Right. And how do we say things to a client? Because it doesn't matter what we say or how smart we are, or what degree we've got on the wall. If we can't convey to that client in a way that makes sense to them, a point in a way that's relevant to them, they're going to reject it. And how do we get them involved in getting the client? Um, and this is just regular psychotherapy, getting them uh, involved in the conversation and making it their idea, not our idea, through motivational interviewing. Um, that all comes down to how we show up. What I, is our stress? What is our self-care? What is our relationship to quality versus productivity? Right. What is our um, model? Uh, how do we see ourselves? What is going on in our minds about people and how do we how do we be preventative as clinicians every week be preventative between every appointment right to remember where we are and be here in the here and now and open to the story and then apply what we know to that even this is i was talking about mostly adult therapy clients in this training but it's the same idea it really is and with the children even more so yes um and with the children even more help is needed in terms of people that are informed about this because you know we, we have the resources are limited for prevention we're focusing on the high flyers we're spending all this money yes but we're not you know, maybe one of the therapists is trauma-informed, but if the behavior coach not trauma-informed and right. they're yelling at the kid and telling him he's got a bad character and he needs to read books about character, they're missing the boat. And that kid's getting a message, which is, remember, we go to crime. We're talking right. about crime here later on in life where people get involved in adverse child experiences, worse health outcomes, more encounters with the law. All of this stuff has been mapped in the adverse child experiences study. We are forming the way they think about themselves as a human being. Through our labels and through our language, starting in preschool, starting before preschool. Yes. And so if somebody believes 
all of this stuff and they don't believe that they can change um, their behavior. They don't even know what their behavior is. But what I'm saying is that if they believe themselves not to be a good person because of all of these interventions we've done, they are going to act accordingly. And it, it may be, maybe not. I mean, it, it is up, you know, there is up to the fate of things. But there's this quote I wanted to say from Bruce Perry. He quoted Eddie Cantor, and you probably know this quote. Eddie Cantor said, when I see the 10 most wanted lists, so like the FBI's 10 most wanted, I always have this thought. If we'd make them, if we'd had made them feel wanted earlier, they wouldn't be wanted now. So the top 10 most wanted list, if we'd make, made them feel wanted earlier, they wouldn't be wanted now. That's a great quote. It's a great quote. And we get reminded when we're in training with Dr. Perry or we may have a caregiver present where the caregiver's talking about and some, well, generally with the caregiver, for training purposes, we may have a person call in talking about that person's experience with the child. Dr. Perry will interview the person and he's modeling us you know, what that relational stance looks like, the very one you talk about so beautifully. And we might be involved in that interview too as we're learning to apply these notions of assessing what's going on between the caregiver and the child, assessing what kind of stressors are in play, and, and, and getting an idea too of what the caregiver's past may look like. One really beautiful notion of that is that in our group of trainees, the folks who are going through this process of getting trained in neurosequential model, we come from a number of different backgrounds. There are therapists, there are foster parents, there are people working in the faith community, there are volunteers and other paraprofessionals, there are behavioral coaches, there are trainers of different kinds coming from a number of different theoretical orientations, trust-based relational intervention, like Susan Purvis' work, I'm an EMDR trainer, practitioner. There are folks with a background of more traditional kind of cognitive behavioral approaches, trauma-focused, CBT. I mean, there are all kinds of folks represented there of different levels, different backgrounds. There are psychologists. There are people who are medical providers, folks with a background in neurology. It's a really remarkably diverse group statewide who are calling in on these seminars and Dr. Perry's modeling this beautifully, still calm, difficult to trigger, treating people with respect, treating them with honor, treating them with curiosity. And more than once we've asked them, Dr. Perry, I noticed you've never really favored one intervention or theory over another. What's that about? And he says, because for the very reasons you just mentioned, Paul, the way you the way you do what you do is probably best described as to how you make relationship and when you think about how you're assessing from a trauma-informed care perspective using this model the idea is that your relational stance is is going to show more of an honor and respect and a curiosity what happened to you i'm not here to criticize you whom is that going to help let me take a look at you as a caregiver. Let me get an idea as to what you've gone through, what it's been like for you. Let me identify your strengths and resources, your internal resources. Let's assess what that load is like. Now let's take a look at your external resources. What's supporting you? What helps give you a chance to help you recover, to feel 
still, to feel calm, to be present? What helps you get there? What aids you in reducing the influence of your own suffering? And he apparently is evidenced by the way he demonstrates this for us and coaches us to do the same. It comes from this place of there are many ways to get there. And that's best done by me showing up, having resolved to the full extent I might, demonstrating my self-acceptance and getting my prefrontal cortex, as he might say, open for business. (laughs) I love that. Yes. And I think that is a really good summary of what some of this, the the way we're trying to apply this. Um, There's a lot more summary of the research that we... I mean, we would have to have a 10-hour podcast (laughs) even kind of touch the first chapter of some of his writing. Um, So I I love that. I I totally agree 100%. I'm wondering, is there something in the model that you had in your notes? Because you're going through this training right now Mm -hmm. uh, here in Maricopa County. Um, Is there something you had in your notes that you wanted to talk about before we start wrapping up? Absolutely. Okay. I would say that the neuro, I feel very grateful that I was included, had an opportunity to be part of a group of people statewide getting trained in neurosequential model, where our focus at the moment, thanks to the Arizona Council for Human Service Providers sponsoring Dr. Perry, giving us this training and exposing us to these experiences, or, or as we might say from an adaptive information processing model, giving us an opportunity to make memories this way. I feel a great deal of gratitude in that it's greatly influenced how I think about how people develop, maybe has confirmed my belief that it ultimately takes a village, that it takes vulnerability. There's that beautiful cultural competency notion that comes to mind over and over again when I'm in training with with our group, with Dr. Perry, of that embracing Going beyond tolerating people, really embracing them, embracing all the diversity, all the diverse ways that human in which human beings show up to embrace that diversity. As we discover these things we have in common, there are these beautiful things we have in common that are part of the human experience. And at the same time, to be open as if the prefrontal cortex were open for novelty and new experiences that lead to growth both as an individual, in my case, and to feel a greater faith and and belief that it is good for us to encounter each other, to connect, to make connections, to make community, and to be aware that all of us are doing the best we know how. And how beautiful that is when we can take away this morality of, like Dr. Perry says, to look at that kid over there who's struggling or that caregiver over there who's struggling, who's getting triggered, or that person over there who's been saddled with addictions, or even a person who's made some big mistakes that had huge consequences, like in a car accident, or maybe there was violence, to take a look at that human being and see strengths and where there have been struggles to consider, wow, what happened to that person? What happened to that nervous system early in life? What did that nervous system and the human being who comes with it experience bring into the world that may have been the result of generations of suffering to consider those things before we so quickly just judge and say 
that and to confirm oftentimes to confirm yeah that person's broken yeah that person's bad that's a bad person that person's evil yeah he knows what he's doing he's manipulative look at what he's doing this student is not a good student that caregiver is not a good parent and it's going to take punishment and expulsion and exclusion to somehow correct their ways and what dr perry's offering with this model starting with this remarkably complex system this from most this just the most amazing complex system that we call the nervous system and you take everything connected to it in the rest of the body and all these other people and all the rest of us who who can play an in who have an influence and how that develops starting with that incredibly complex system and working your way on a continuum all the way out radiating out from that you you have a remarkable starting point for conceptualizing hmm what are we faced with here and how can i best show up with my myself aligned and ready for novelty and curiosity and with a desire to make a difference there what a what a great way to operate with people what a great way to conceptualize that and to live that yeah absolutely i totally agree with 100% of that i was thinking a little bit it's just about and I don't want to do the same thing that I feel like people are doing to others when I make the statement. But I was thinking about snap judgments. Right. And I was thinking about binary thinking. When when the system is stressed, people are tending to need categories, black right. or white. We know from experience and from all the great writers and philosophers and scientists that it's life is not in a black and white, lived in a black and white world. We have a lot of color, a lot of diversity, a lot of nuance, even in things that happen. There's multiple grades of it. When you dig deep and you take the time, you find out about that person or that situation or that event. I mean, just look at his history when you when you hear a historical blurb in school and then you actually go back and read what the people wrote about it at that time. It's a lot different than our summary. So just like that, if we look at somebody's, some event in someone's life and then we just make a snap judgment about who they are, Based on what? Based on our judgment, based on um, assumption, based on a projection of this sort of higher-than-thou moral code, which none of us who are in the judgment seat judging others can even live up to ourselves. Very true. And so how do we, you know, I see the system is stressed, and so then we need, there's the system reacting to the child in school with stress. I'm stressed now. This child is stressing me out. They're stressing out the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, now I need control. How do I get control? I need control. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at it like a battering ram or like a loud right. siren or I'm going to restrain and, 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 and I'm going to do all these things. When I, and, and yeah, okay, you know, I can see why you've come up with those ideas, but how do we take the time needed to really hear that person's story and to align with them and to help regulate their nervous system, especially a child. Um, adults need it too. I mean, attachment never stops as you, we've talked Absolutely. about before, Absolutely. but how are we able to model that? Because if, if we come up at them with this, with this negative energy, we're just feeding more into the system, right? We're, we're building it up and we don't, there's not an opportunity as much for change because we, we need their, prefrontal cortex to come more online to be open for business well that involves less stress yes and so how do we set them up for success 
instead of this need for control, because the need for control has always failed right over over time we ultimately you can control people for a while until there's an uprising or until there's something that changes the order of who's in control and we can look at thousands of years of history to see that but on a micro level with children um you gain more control by being more open Mm -hmm. you get control of your classroom quote unquote by making a place where everyone can learn. And if there are certain children that are falling behind, getting them a place that gives them more supports to more regulate, and thus you're going to get the behavioral results you want versus coming at them with consequences and judgments. Um, And so I think this is a paradigm that's hard to understand if you haven't been there and had that awakening yourself. Because I do think it starts with the self the clinician, the person listening to this podcast, to have an opening and an awareness that they they are, while they're unique as they are and they have their history, and they're, but they're all part of a larger human story. And the larger human story, we have a lot in common. It doesn't matter your tribe or your culture. We have a lot in common. Joseph Campbell's work, um, studying all the cultures and all their stories of mythology and spirituality finding all the great comparisons and all the great um not comparisons compatibility and uh things they had in common there's some of that i mean there's just different things now while we all have different preferences and food and music and and um you know things in our life what are those things we share in common a lot if we can openly talk about it especially with adults but with children they need more care they don't have that communication skill yet um, and so how do we set them up for success instead of setting them up for judgment and uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of negativity? Uh, it's, it's a difficult thing because it, it does take a community and it takes a community that's aware of themselves because I've got to show up as a therapist. I've got to, I've got to make sure that I'm taking care of my business and I've got a therapist and I've got a support system right. so that I can best show up on Monday morning and be present and not stressed because if I'm stressed about something happening at the office or I'm stressed about something in my personal life, if I haven't taken care of that, that's going to bleed into therapy. Even if they don't even know the person I'm working with doesn't even know what's going on in my life, they could sense, am I open to what they're saying? Am I preoccupied? Right. Those little nuanced things make a difference. It really does. And we think about and Bruce Perry talks about that, whether he's talking about with the neurosequential model of therapeutics or the neurosequential model of education or neurosequential model of caregiving. The common denominators, the things in common between all of those, those particular branches of the neurosequential model speak to that very notion of how do we increase the chance that whether that teacher or that psychiatrist or that therapist or that foster parent or that extended family member manage to to get themselves in a place of reducing the influence of their own suffering, to get to that place to where they're less likely to just be triggered and just react, to get to that place where they're intentional, that they're being strategic, that they're catching children doing well, that they provide themselves and the children transitions, that they give them a chance to kind of ease into an activity or a change of one place to another. Okay, it's time to go to grandma's. Let's, I'm giving you plenty of time to pick up your toys. 
You're coming to this new place as a group home. Let's give you a chance to get used to it. Let's dose the transitions. Let's help you get those lower brain structures needs taken care of, of safety and belonging and nourishment and then warmth and a connection to something that's familiar as we expose you to something new. If you're a physician, what can we do to, to, from this standpoint, how can we help you as a physician have a practice where you can be still and you can be present with people and have time to be curious and ask them questions? If you're a therapist, how might you model the very thing that you want them to exhibit? Greater self-regulation, a sense that they have a pause between getting their buttons pressed and just reacting. How do we get you as a therapist to model these things that you're going to transmit by way of your relationship? If you're a caregiver, how do we get it to where when the child is having difficulty, you have a way of staying centered and you can strategically reduce the stress or manage better the stress in your life so that you give yourself good transitions? How do we do that? And so what I believe that Dr. Perry's given us is a gift is based on the findings of so many colleagues bringing together so many elements of so many people, including some we've mentioned, a starting point, looking at the neurology itself, the nervous system itself, giving us a starting point to kind of start to describe these things to aid in that paradigm shift I think we're talking about. Yes, and it's, it is interesting because we... we we're gifted because him and all of his colleagues in the medical and research communities have been doing the research to then, you know, we might read the article and eventually understand from the abstract and the summary what it's trying to say, and then translating that into language that anyone can understand. That is, I think, the task that I think the professionals are being given and the Child Trauma Academy is doing and Dr. Bruce Perry is how do we translate things that are now confirmed to distribute? I mean, I would say, hopefully, let's start with the grad schools of psychology and social work. Yes. Um, They need a curriculum update. (laughs) I think so. I'm sure of it. Uh, I think so. Okay. What about our continuing education units? Um, we are starting to see that, um, a lot of trauma-informed trainings. And then even further, how do we translate this into school curriculums? Right. How do we translate this into hospitals? How do we translate this into primary care? How do we translate this into the general public? That's going to be difficult. I think that might require a television show. Um, Probably. Or something something where you can see it in a story form. Um, but but it's just it's a way... It's a way of understanding people where you don't take so much personally. Right. That's a key. And you you are able to mentalize or see the other person as an organism doing the best they can, but they have a different background than you and they have a different experience. And if, why did they do that? Well, they're different than you. Right. And it's, it's, it's hard to see this. And I mean, even if you've ever worked with couples therapy. Yes. Ever- <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, just understanding the nature of socialization of the opposites, usually opposites attract in terms of energy, um, not saying anything about gender or sexuality there, but just in terms of energy, yeah. usually one person has a really good strength in something that the other person has a deficit in yeah, and vice versa. And then 
uh, it's so interesting how the person is so frustrated. Why can't they see it my way? Right. And it's like, well, they're not you. Yeah, basically. Yeah. You're not dating yourself. Yeah. You're dating someone else who has a different or married to somebody who is a very different set of how they grew up and how they regulate and what their priorities are and how they get safe and how you get safe is differently and how you feel um, how you feel honored or loved is different than how they feel loved. And I mean, th- this is getting into a whole nother topic. It's but, lovely. But it's interesting how like, good Lord, as a society, it's hard for us even to, <laughs> to find this in our close relationships. So it takes true. work. It does. And I think eventually, hopefully it'll be the norm. But I think we're having to unlearn as a society, hundreds of years in the US and thousands of years as a society where we had a, a different type of model, a more authoritarian in the Western world, a more authoritarian viewpoint, um, and a more categorizational viewpoint for various reasons that yeah. we could go on and on about. And how do we open that up to honoring categories and science um, and and differences, while also being open and not and, and seeing the the bigger picture in terms of how we can relate in a way that's peaceful and with boundaries. How can we, you know, we have boundaries, but how do we relate in a way that's open and peaceful where we're not going in with a chip on our shoulder? You know, this is uh, getting right. into how humans relate. No, it's beautiful. You, you get in that notion of that unresolved stuff or the, the unre- those unresolved memories from the past influencing how we experience others and ourselves in the world. And that chip on the shoulder getting in the way of that at all levels of relationship making including with couples even those people most intimate with us and you get reminded of wow what an incredible world it would be if we adopted a model and bruce Perry himself says this model will undergo evolution there'll be other models and hopefully and this is speaks to me about a quality of bruce perry to where he's even letting his own ego, so to speak, not be an obstacle here to fostering a greater and greater understanding to where we have a world that's more compassionate, a world that's more like the way you describe. In fact, in one of our training sessions, somebody brought up this metaphor that she had gotten from a mentor of hers that I thought was particularly beautiful. And this is the kind of thing that happens in our training sessions once or twice a month or in our meetings. Somebody will get so inspired by this general goodwill, this sense of collaboration and mutual respect, mutual, you know, the sense of connection, and that we all have something to contribute. And that we're all unique and it's wonderful. So in this, I mean, we're living it. We're living it as we're studying this. And when that happens, these beautiful things get created. We wound up creating these beautiful ideas. And one of them was... One of the person in the group, one of the, the uh, in this case, a clinician who works with young, very young children, infant mental health specialist, was saying that one of her mentors inspired her to think about a world where we all come from the same source. Like, like if you throw, if, if you've had cereal and you throw a piece of cereal in the bowl and you might have seen images like this where things kind of emanate from the center. These droplets seem kind of connected to the milk, for example, or if you throw a rock in a pond and there's this there's this kind of emanation, you know, these, these different droplets coming out in a circle. And she used that as a metaphor to describe the kind of world we could create where we practice in a larger context the very thing that happens in our training sessions of 
Well, we all come from the same place, and yet we're separate droplets. We're made out of the same stuff, and we're having these unique experiences. And how beautiful it can be, how beautiful it might be to be aware of both of those at the same time. That we come from the same place, made out of the same stuff, like Carl Sagan might say, we're made of star stuff. And and yet we each have our your unique paths, and we're and and that shows up in our bodies as we're unique bodies with a unique nervous system, and we're making unique memories. And they can one can be curious about that and be respectful of it, and be aware of both of those being true at the same time, and look at the implications that might have for how we educate people, how we build relationship, how we build partnerships, how we operate at work, how we accomplish big things, how we include people who may have done without, that we sense both the connection and a sense that there's a beautiful uniqueness and diversity to humankind that may actually, one might even argue, might be necessary for our survival as a species to do both, to recognize that we come from the same place and we have an opportunity to appreciate each other's unique nervous systems and paths. I love it. That's absolutely beautiful, Randy. And that is why, I mean, this is great. I love that you're, you've got so much knowledge that you're willing to share with the audience. And this is just great stuff. So Randy, it's really been an honor having you on the show. I love having you on the show. For our listeners who have just tuned in, if you want to know more about Randy, um, his background, his personal background, and some of his training that he initially did, check out episode 14. You'll hear a lot about that before we um, get into some of the other topics. But right now, I wanted to talk about kind of what you're doing now, um, how people get involved in the various things you do, and also how do people get involved with Bruce Perry's um, trainings. Oh, great. Sure. Glad to. And it's it's a delight to be here. I've really enjoyed myself. With Mercy Care, what I'm doing is in workforce development, we're in the process of helping organizations develop their own people and kind of moving from a paradigm. We've been talking about paradigm shifts. One interesting paradigm shift we've been working there is helping organizations like mental health and community mental health centers, integrated health centers, really identify the strengths of their own people and to develop training and really going beyond training, frankly, to true workforce development, identifying people's strengths, identifying how they want to develop as a way of providing stability in their organization. So we're doing a lot in consultation, helping them develop that and offering technical assistance to develop self-directed online training, face-to-face training, and other learning experiences. So that's been really fun, really helping them kind of think outside of the box instead of just, well, we take this training or we do this class and we check the box to really think about developing their people. And a beautiful piece of that from a trauma-informed care perspective that gets woven into all of that is how do we help the workers reduce the influence of their overwhelming experiences, including some of these systemic stressors we're talking about. So it's just a beautiful thing on that front. As it relates to EMDR Humanitarian Assistance Program and the Trauma Recovery Network, have an opportunity to, as an EMDR trainer, to help clinicians learn EMDR therapy, the adaptive information processing model, all of those things are, are beautifully integrative and take into account the wisdom of the body 
and the power of memory making. And so there again, all this work that I'm doing with the, the Child Trauma Academy with Dr. Perry and learning how to apply these principles to helping foster parents to, to begin with and, and caregivers, adoptive folks, uh, adoptive families is dovetailing very beautifully for me and helping me make a bunch of connections. We talk a lot about connections here and that's helped me quite a bit. So I get to travel all over Canada, the United States, Puerto Rico, and I'm, I'm guessing at some point we'll probably go to a number of other places as well. So, and then I do some consultation in EMDR, since that's a part of what trainers and facilitators do in the EMDR community, as we're all con- approved consultants. So that's one thing we do. And of course, I see, I usually at any given period of time might have 10 folks I see. So I don't see as many people as I used to. And so, and I'm all the time volunteering for organizations. I'm, I'm actively involved in an organization here in the Phoenix area that is an entire community center for, for foster, adoptive, and kinship families. Oh, wow. And so I'm donating <clears throat> some work there and some expertise and will probably facilitate some groups of some kind for them. I don't know. I haven't quite figured out when I'm going to do it. Maybe between 3 and 4 or 3 and 5 in the morning or something. <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to do Very it. Very busy. I'm, I'm pretty busy. I've I'm, I'm never been happier in... So yeah, those are those some of the things I'm involved in these days. That's wonderful. So just for your listeners out there, um, first thing is if you are in Maricopa County and you are a behavioral health clinician, you can sign up for trainings through Mercy Maricopa. Um, I'm not sure how many of those you're actually doing anymore because you're consulting a lot. Are you teaching any of the trainings still? I am, and you're you you're welcome to. I am, and you're welcome to contact me. If you're interested in any of those training initiatives, and a good way to do that is at webr, W-E-B-B-R, at mercycare, all one word, az.org. That's amazing. And then for people that want to be trained in EMDR, there's multiple ways to get trained in EMDR oh, yeah. therapy, but the EMDR Humanitarian Assistance Program, um, you can actually put that into Google. And you, sure. or Randy will probably know the uh, the address oh, of yeah. it, um, and you can get trained. And I know that you <coughs> train all over the place. Uh, you were in Salt Lake City recently, I, right. I heard. Um, so yeah, do you want to tell people about how they can sign up for that? Sure. So a great way to do that is to contact the Humanitarian Assistance Program directly. If you work for an organization that works in the public health system, so you maybe you work for a non for profit, for example, and so we offer pretty discounted training compared to other training providers that would be IMDRI approved training providers or the EMDR Institute itself offers training. So the best way to contact the organization for which I volunteer, that would be EMDRHAP, H-A-P, EMDRHAP.org. Click on training and you can find out about how to attend training or if your organization would like to host training, that's an option too. As it relates to the EMDR Institute, you can go to EMDRIA, E-M-D-R-I-A dot org, click on training, and you can find out about attending those trainings if that's more convenient for you. And you can also find out, you can contact EMDRIA about, I think there's some 70 EMDRIA-approved independent trainers. So if you wanted to get basic training, there are lots of opportunities with that. We have a couple, God, we have several right here in the Phoenix area, but they're all over the country. 
And so if you if it were more convenient for you to sign up for a training with one of those independent EMDR, EMDRIA approved trainers, some they may reach your geographic area maybe more easily. But again, you have a lot of options there for EMDR training. Absolutely. And I have loved EMDR training. In fact, 2009, I was my first EMDR training with Ana Gomez, okay. who you're acquainted with. And sure. I... After being in her training for two days or three days, I can't remember how long it was. I think it was three days. I just had a completely different perspective on how to be a therapist and felt so much more confident in my ability to help people. So if you're a clinician out there and you're struggling and you're stressed out and you know, you've know you done every talk therapy training there is, I mean, I'm, I'm all, all about talk therapy. I love talk therapy. Um, but I, I think there's it's a good idea just to get new tools. And so EMDR can be one of your tools. I love it. Um, Randy, I know you love it too. Oh yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I really, it did change my life and my trajectory of just how I saw things just be, and not only just because of the intervention, but because of the, tr- the, the teaching behind the adaptive information processing network and the, and which is based on trauma research, which is based, you know, which is very much in correlation and in coordination with Bruce Perry's oh, sure. neurosequential model. And that had me had a look at a whole new way of observing behaviors and my own behaviors as well. Sure. Um, and so with that, actually, can you tell people a little bit about how to get involved with Dr. Bruce Perry's trainings and or the Child Trauma Academy? Sure, you can You can go to childtrauma.org and get information there. You can go on YouTube and you can do a search like Paul was, de- like you were describing, Paul, uh, uh, of different YouTube videos. You can find his book on Amazon, a really good book by Bruce Perry that kind of encompasses a lot of his thinking, really kind of shows you how he does it, how he builds relationships, is The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Mm. And you can find that on Amazon or, of course, any place where you can get – and you can get it in other languages, too. I actually read it in Spanish. Maybe I'm just kind of tooting my own horn there <laughs> about my bilingualism. But and so a wonderful, wonderful – way of how he makes all this apply to how he does the work and how he has done the work and what kind of things led him to conceptualize things the way he did. And of course, you're welcome to contact the Arizona Council for Human Service Providers, Arizona Council of Human Human Service Providers. You can reach at azcouncil.com. And that's the organization that's hosting Dr. Perry's training here in Arizona. But that could be a place where you could start, too, to touch base and find out, hey, I'm not in Arizona, but I would like to get involved in some of his training. Do you have a recommendation for how I might do that? And the reason I bring them up, even though they're based here in Phoenix, is because they have a long-standing relationship with Dr. Perry that goes back, I'm thinking, at least 15 years, maybe longer, where they had sponsored him coming out to Arizona before. So they may have some pointers about how you might cultivate that relationship with him and with the Child Trauma Academy. I love it. And I really, actually, we were having this discussion before the podcast. I would love to see more trauma-informed care, trauma-specific interventions, and the neurosequential model being taught all around um, the Midwest, where I spend a lot of the year now. Uh, I would love that. So I'm going to try to, myself, get involved in bringing more training, um, just because... I feel like it gives people hope. Um, not only people that are adults that are working on recovering from developmental childhood trauma or uh, car accidents or terrible incidents or just whatever they're going through, 
uh, on the intervention stage, but also just as a way to help us understand children and child development and how to help um, at schools and how to view things differently. The paradigm shift that occurs once you have, you know, if you're open to it and if you've read enough and learned enough, and I guess that's the trouble. We can't force people to learn this stuff. We have to present it in a way that makes sense. And so I think that's, I would love that more clinicians to take that up as we are messengers. We have to take what we've learned from the scientists and the doctors who are studying this stuff, distill it, make a reduction sauce and try to explain it to absolutely people so that it'll fit. It doesn't, um, it doesn't conflict, I think, with a lot of people's thinking. I think once people really understand it, it actually makes more sense and helps them uh, have a, a more positive viewpoint about um, what they're able to do. And for people that became cynical about other people's behavior, I think it can help them open up to more curiosity and more understanding, more acceptance of themselves and others, which, again, leading back to what would happen if we were all do, trying to do that, you know, with our own thing all the time. So I'm excited for people to have that opportunity. And I think right now, um, as far as I can see, your private practice is pretty much full and kind of on a referral basis only. Is, for, is that true? I would say that's true. Uh, occasionally taking folks, and it feels good. I connected and networked with many, many wonderful clinicians, including yourself. And I'm glad to help people find someone who's a great fit with whom they might make a really good relationship. Absolutely. And um, I think that's a good point. So sometimes people contact me and I don't might not be able to see them, but I can definitely refer them to somebody who I trust, who I feel has the skills to help them with their situation. So don't ever be afraid to contact myself or Randy Absolutely. Uh, about that. Um, making a, a good referral because we are connected to a lot of good clinicians. I'm connected to clinicians here and in Phoenix and also in Grand Rapids. And Randy, you know people all around the nation as you travel. <laughs> it's kind of worked out that as way. As you sort of travel everywhere. So <laughs> actually just kind of for a fun thing, I was curious about, you know, you're flying all over the place for this EMDR training. So right. I was just curious about a, a fun place you went to, if you want to share that. Absolutely. about Seems like everywhere I go, I guess this is kind of maybe the neurosequential model has influenced me in ways that I hadn't even taken inventory of yet. This may be one of them. I seem to get better and better at finding out good things about no matter where, no matter where I go. So it seems like it doesn't take long for me to really enjoy wherever it is I go to. So like if I go to Puerto Rico, I get to enjoy, you know, obviously practicing my Spanish and, and those folks trying to understand this guy who's educated by Argentinians and takes us a while to get used to each other. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> And it was particularly powerful for me to go there after uh, to last summer, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. after all that had happened with Hurricane Maria. So it was really beautiful there and made some wonderful relationships are very much cherished. So that was really fun and interesting. I, I, it's kind of funny. I grew up in Atlanta. I've lived in, in Phoenix and Tucson for most of my adult life. And yet, I really enjoy going to places where it's cold and snowy. And <laughs> and so, when I get a chance to go to Minneapolis, like I did a couple of times in the last year, or where last year, in fact, just before the Super Bowl, they had this record snowfall. So, it was kind of fun hearing snowplows running day and night and other people complaining about it. And I'm going, oh, it's kind of fun and, and neat and different. I guess that's what happens. Or when we had occasion to go to Thunder Bay, Ontario, had a beautiful experience there. The people were just really beautiful. The place is beautiful. 
Uh, I got to spend some time in Toronto. What a wonderful, great city that is with remarkable people where there's so much embracing of diversity. Oh, I, I love really, Toronto. What a great place. Just what a beautiful place. Um, I had a great time in Salt Lake City. Got to walk around in the snow for a long time. So, yeah, I've spent some time. Yeah, I get sent all over the place, and I seem to manage to find something that's fun that keeps my interest, even if it's really different from what I'm used to. So I had a great time in, in Central California, in the basin there, in uh, just south of Fresno, and had a wonderful experience there, getting to know the people there. Very, I was very impacted by their awareness of immigration issues and the long history of migrant workers and a sense of tradition and an attachment to things happening at the border. I was greatly moved by our recent trainings in the last in the last year, particularly in the last few months in El Paso with all that's going on there and the oh separated goodness. families and mm-hmm. the beautiful work that organizations are doing there. So it's kind of hard to pick a favorite, but oh uh, yeah, <laughs> have you gathered? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> it's kind of hard to. It's, but I, I've been deeply moved and impacted, and I've, I'd like to think, Paul, that all these different influences I've had in my uh, in my professional career have led me to this very thing that you talk about that I value so much: this kind of openness and curiosity, a certain vulnerability, getting my ego out of the way, kind of practicing the four agreements. Uh, and among those, not taking things personally, I, I, I think, frankly, I will tell you that I, to, at the risk of maybe going back into this too deeply, but when Bruce Perry talked here in Phoenix in December, I was moved to tears, frankly, because of his courage. I was moved by his courage to stand up and say, we have some really big decisions to make. And I would invite all of you to see the power in that vulnerability. And he reminds us of the power of vulnerability. And and I found myself having a sense of my preconceived limits are no longer relevant. Mm. And I and so I just found out I'm gonna I'm just gonna go with that, as we say in the MDR therapy. I'm just gonna go with that and just let it take me where it's gonna take me. And that I don't know where that will lead me. And I just kind of have an, a growing sense of kind of a trust in my, my own true core self of, of being a person of heart, of being a person of conscience, and, and having courage, right? You think of the origins of the word courage, you know, of heart. And I, I can tell that I'm approaching the world this way more and more. And I'm, I'm, I'm moved by people like Bruce Perry and yourself and others who say, there may be all kinds of things in play that resist what we're doing, and we're going to do it anyway. We're going to offer it that. We're going to come from a place of good-heartedness and see what kind of effect we have and come from there. Absolutely. And I totally agree with you because actually just putting out this podcast and some of the projects I'm working on, um, while a lot of people have been receptive, I'm sure that there's forces at work that don't want this sort of thing broadcast. Yeah. And uh, I really appreciate your courage in traveling all over and training people. And I, I do see the openness of, there's so many things I want to say, but the openness of travel, <laughs> which is not my main point, it's just how much it opens you up if you're willing to go outside of your comfort zone. Absolutely. So if I travel and I just go to Chili's in the airport, I may be comfortable with that. But if I, if I, if I travel and I meet the local people, I find out I have things in common with them. We Absolutely. just have different cultural preferences or different cultural backgrounds or different food preferences. But 
it's so beautiful and that was one of the things my my aunt gifted me with when I was younger was before she passed away was she worked for Delta. And so when I was a young man, she mm. let me fly uh, standby all over to, and I would sleep on my friend's couches in different, you know, cities and states. And yeah. it opened me up to lessons. I remember learning a lesson in s- Southern Texas. My grandparents had gone down there to get out of the cold weather and um, from Minnesota actually. And uh, I remember I remember a bus driver, I think it was a Greyhound bus driver from Halliburton, Texas. No, it's Halliburton. Um, Harlingen, excuse me, Texas to San Antonio where I was flying somewhere else. And I remember him him and I just talked for an hour or two, whenever, how long the thing was, because there's no one else on the bus. So I sat up front and he just told me, you know what? I may not have a college degree, but what I've learned is that life is the greatest teacher. Yeah, And I think he sort of followed up with, if you're willing to listen, but I can't remember exactly. I just remember that quote and I said, oh my gosh, he's right. And, and being open to life and being open to differences and not seeing them as a threat. And, and, and I think that comes back to our own ego work. Yeah. Um, as you know, I've told you, it's also on the podcast. It's the national violence prevention hotline that I'm trying to get funding for. And I'm working on and it sounds like a great idea that everyone could be in favor of but i'm expecting pushback it's at violencepreventionhotline.org i'm working right now with a grant writer and i'm going to be talking in chicago at the cultural impact conference about it about my idea and i've found some research that backs up sort of what i'm saying it's based on the suicide prevention lifeline but it's about people that might want to become violent and how do they reach out and find people because they might be ashamed to go to a therapist or a, a person for for a fear of getting in trouble, but I'm, I'm expecting to get some flack. And oh, so yeah. it, you know, being a person who is not one to instigate a fight, um, as most therapists aren't, um, our predilection is to try to, you know, be loving and open. Right. Uh, how do I be loving and open in the face of, um, flack that yeah. uh, and hatred or, or misunderstanding or whatever is going to come my way? Uh, if this thing grows larger, I'm certain it will occur. Um, and even uh, in Grand Rapids, where I am living most of the year, I'm, I guess I'll just unveil it now. But in May, we're going to be unveiling the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids. Beautiful. Um, which is all trauma-informed counselors doing trauma-specific interventions because I felt that there was a need there. Um, and I wanted to gather people together to do it. And so uh, most of the feedback's been positive, but I know some people uh, you know, may not love that because they're not sure what it is i think it's mostly out of ignorance or fear that people yeah. react in the way that they do sure um and so uh, but i want to welcome those people that are fearful or or have a negative opinion of us to to into dialogue because i think that's where the powerful come comes because i i know that you don't i know both of us i don't think i'm not trying to speak for you but i don't, I don't feel like you do this work out of your ego I think you do it out of a, a sense of wanting to help others and to wanting to change the greater community. And I feel that uh, that's sometimes a hard motivator to understand. Right. Uh, you know, if we're taught in society that we need to to focus on ourselves and our happiness and making money, it's hard to understand why would people be motivated to help others you know, in, in, in this way. So I don't know what you think about that. I couldn't agree more. And I get reminded that to the extent that I get my ego out of the way, that I'm open to all kinds of experiences and learning from it, just like you described, you know, to be present and, 
to be present and have those conversations, the tough conversations, and to invite the people who offer different memories and different experiences. Uh, They've made different memories and they have different experiences. And I get reminded how beautiful it is to be willing to do that. There's a professor here at Arizona State University and Dr. Neil Lester, and one one time on Facebook, he was reacting to something that I'd posted about trauma-informed care or doing work with people. And he offered the notion in his reaction of, well, maybe the person doesn't necessarily want therapy. And that reminds me of what you were just mentioning, that it that healers come in all kinds. Fortunately, some of them, we're not waiting on them to get the so-called proper credentials. And I responded back to him and I said, frankly, I get reminded of how wonderful it is when people let me be a part of that relationship making. I show up the way I show up with the kind of education that I show up with or the background I have using the words that I do. I'm deeply humbled, frankly, that given the kind of experiences people have, that they would allow that to happen or that they would be willing to do that. And I find that I probably do that better and make more of those potentially healing relationships for both of us. When I turn down the volume on my own ego and I turn down the volume on my own preconceived notions about how things are supposed to be and be open to the possibility that so many other things are not only, not only can happen, but do And that it would be good for me to consider that up to this point, I may have been blind to them and they may have been invisible to me. And to allow that to happen and to be be affected by that and to be moved by it. And to consider that this, this person sitting in front of me or these people sitting in front of me bring all these rich experiences that I have little access to. And yeah, I was about to say, I'm glad you said that because I was actually going to say when I made the statement about us trying to do this for the community, well, you know, we all have egos and that trip us up. And so it's inner, we have to do our inner work. I think it's a, for me, I know I'm just, here's a confession, you know, some days I'm better at it than others. And mm-hmm. I've got to do the work on myself in order to be open and in yeah. order to be humble in order to not have a preconceived notion of how therapy should go, even according to a modality that I'm utilizing. Right. And, and how, and to be, to really get rid of our preconceived assumptions and notions is, is a very difficult work, but it's a work that with repetition and renewal and different things you can do, um, I think can help you no matter if you're a therapist or if you're a teacher or if you're a business person or whoever, whatever thing you do for eight hours a day or whatever, whatever the normal work day is, or in, or just as a, as a person, as a parent, as a friend, as a individual, um, it can help anybody in any place of life. And like you said, healers come in all shapes, forms, and sizes, and you don't even have to be trained, um, formally to do uh, you know, you can't hang up your say. Say you're a therapist, but you can be healing people in your community right now with no credentials. At Absolutely, all. And people have been doing it for thousands of years. It I just happened it's more grassroots. Then go ahead. No, I, I was gonna. I couldn't agree more. And I get reminded that the the future of our species may rest upon that, to the extent that we are open to experiences, open to other ways, open to what was once invisible to us turning down the volume on, and I use that metaphor, 
but maybe 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 to expand that notion of turning down the volume was to is to be willing to experience all these shades of gray and all these other tones of experience in the way we feel and the way that we sense and the way that we think to find maximum diversity in ourselves actually and to celebrate that as we make these connections and reduce the influence of our own suffering that leads us to these distortions we call them in so many things in our parlance right you know these indications of black and white thinking or distortions of some some kind but they they manifest in a lot of ways and to me a beautiful thing to find in a healer be that a teacher or a therapist or a psychiatrist or a physician or a community leader or anyone for that matter to see the great power that all of us have in making relationships and being in the role of a healer and having those qualities of that pause of seeing the bigger picture finding those shades of gray in all of our experiences and appreciating all of them gives us much greater resolution and a fullness of life i think absolutely yeah, I agree completely, and yeah, the fullness of life, and I think, I do think it takes vulnerability and courage to let yourself be part of the fullness of life and the fabric of life, and it takes coming out of your comfort zone and getting muddy. I call it muddy. It's muddy out there, and and have you ever seen those races where people run through the mud for like 5K, and right, they're covered right. with mud, and then they've got their ribbon at the end? Well, there's a different way to run that race tiptoeing you know trying to stay on the edges or really getting involved and and i think that 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 metaphor i'm trying to make is that there we're all going through some type of suffering we're all going through some type of hard battle mentally psychologically socially emotionally physically um and we're all facing similar but different things and so being able to kind of have the opposites in our mind at one time, which is life is full of joy and life is also full of sorrow and life is full of pain, but life is also full of beauty and, and gorgeous things and not trying to reduce it to one or the other. Right. Um, and, and letting it be both is an act of being open and non-defensive in a way, and obviously if there's a tiger coming at me, I'm going to be defensive. I don't want that to be the end of my book. And so I just realized it's uh, about lunchtime here in Phoenix, and uh, we we realized we could probably talk all day. Absolutely. Uh, but I'm glad for the time we did have, and I want to just thank you, Randy, for coming on the Intentional Clinician Podcast, and I'm looking forward to sharing this with everyone. It's an absolute delight, Paul. Thanks for inviting me, and as always, as last time, I just had a great time. I really appreciate it. I wanted to thank all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast. Hopefully, you learned something new and found something useful that you can use in your life or to better the lives of others. I appreciate everyone who's been subscribing and sharing the podcast. It is a labor of love and something that I do with my spare time. And I'm really glad that all of you have chosen to listen to it. If you're in the Grand Rapids area and you are seeking counseling, check out 
the practice that I'm a clinical director at, Health for Life Grand Rapids at www.healthforlifegr.com. We've got amazing trauma-informed counselors there and just a great group of folks. And I'm excited to announce that we are going to officially open up part of Health for Life Grand Rapids to be the trauma-informed counseling center of Grand Rapids. And more on that coming up in a future podcast. But I'm super excited as we'll be having multiple trauma-specific modalities practiced by many counselors in our office, all in one place, hoping to become a center of excellence. If you work for a small private practice or a group practice and are looking for a great electronic health records system, I would recommend Simple Practice. I use Simple Practice and now I'm starting to use their billing system as well as the regular scheduling. I find it awesome. And if you would like to support this podcast, you can click the link in the show notes for your free 30-day trial of Simple Practice and that will help support this podcast. If you are a person who is in need of a counselor, please look up a licensed professional counselor in your area. I find that using the internet is the best method or asking trusted friends or a doctor for a referral and make sure that they are the type of counselor that can meet your needs and for what you're looking for. The Intentional Clinician is for educational and promotional purposes only and does not claim to be the authority on any matter. These are all of the opinions of Paul Krauss and his guests. So if you are looking for a consultant or a professor or a counselor or whatever you're looking for, make sure you find one in your area that is certified or licensed and seek them out for some actual intervention. If you are in any sort of crisis, please dial 1-800-273-8255, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you're in the Grand Rapids area and you're looking for a counselor, check out my website, www.healthforlifegr.com. Thanks so much for listening. Penguins are black and white and short and don't fly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now I'm realizing we're getting a little...